Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, December 5th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. What do you get when you mix a Nobel Prize-winning genetic scientist with a jazz musician and composer? Genes and jazz, naturally. But also, one heck of a father-son program. Harold Varmus won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1989 and is now the president of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. His son, Jacob Varmus, is an accomplished New York-based jazz musician and composer. Together, they put a program together on cell biology and cancer for the Guggenheim's Works and Process series. This week, get a crash course on the causes of cancer and DNA basics. Plus, hear how a father and son with very different interests managed to fuse their talents together. Also, check out our multimedia this week for some amazing animations of DNA replication and protein synthesis. We got them from Australian scientist and artist Drew Barry. We begin with the cell the simplest unit in biology. I'm Harold Varmus, and I am the president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and I study cancer genes. What you see on the screen is a typical animal cell, or a drawing of one, probably the most familiar image to most of you who remember high school biology. It has a nucleus, which contains the chromosomes, a form of life we'll come back to, and the nucleus is surrounded by the cytoplasm. The entire cell is held together with an outer membrane and the nucleus by an internal envelope. My name is Jacob Varmus. I'm a trumpeter and a composer. Cells are like tiny orchestras. They contain several kinds of instruments. The chromosomes, which contain the genes of a cell and reside in the nucleus. A variety of enzymes, those proteins that synthesize some molecules and destroy others. Mitochondria, a small intracellular machine that you probably remember from your high school biology that synthesizes chemical energy. Membranes, which hold parts of the cell together. And finally, the ribosomes. Microscopic factories that make proteins, as we'll see in much greater detail later on. Well, I was invited to uh, give a lecture in this series called Works and Process. And rather than give a typical science lecture and seeing that the series has all kinds of arts represented, theater and ballet and music, I thought it might be an enjoyable occasion for me to work with my son as a jazz musician and to uh, try to integrate science and jazz. Why the trumpet? It has a connection to the human voice and there's a simplicity to the instrument even though it's challenging. The challenges are kind of laid out from the beginning. It's not highly technical but there's a lot involved. I feel connected to my own body when I do it. I feel like my body's doing the work and it's less dependent on the instrument itself. I feel like I'm singing through it. Despite their different appearances, the cells appearing on the screen behind me are united by their common instruments and by some common harmonic rules. But they also carry out very different functions. Some form blood vessels. Nerve cells allow us to think, to hear, 
or to smell. Some cells make bone, others destroy it. Red cells carry oxygen. Immune cells fight infection. Embryonic stem cells can become any of the possible body types. And finally, germ cells include sperm, which fuse with eggs to form the first cell of a new individual. The nature of the collaboration is interesting. I framed out the scientific argument I wanted to make, which not everybody necessarily would agree with. Actually, one of my own postdocs wrote me a complaint this morning that I didn't spend enough time talking about cancer and devoted too much time to the cell. But I don't agree with that. What I wanted to do was to paint a broad picture of how cells work and how they process information. And I was aided in that by having some pretty remarkable animations sent to me by Drew Barry in Australia. But I wanted to explain how cells work and then show that they work by basically processing and copying information. And that, not surprisingly, when a cell has to deal with that much information, mistakes occur. And, and those mistakes drive evolution, but they also have a dark side. Namely, they lead to cancer. My father asked me to do the project with him. And he said, we're going to call it Jeans and Jazz, and I objected to the title, but I gave him the title. I was a little bit surprised because I knew that he, that he wouldn't lay his credibility on the line unless he respected what I was doing enough. So it was flattering in that sense, but also I knew it was going to be a loaded project because of the dimensions and the interaction between any father and son. On the screen, you've been seeing synchronized cells going through the cell cycle. Several hours of cell action reduced to several seconds. The makers of this time-lapse film have used some chemical tricks to help us see two important constituents of the cell. In blue, DNA, the critical part of chromosomes. In green, a protein called tubulin. Tubulin forms a scaffold that aligns the chromosomes and ensures that they get properly distributed to daughter cells. The cell cycle is very impressive, but another aspect of living things is equally impressive, development. Multicellular organisms, like plants or animals, including, of course, human beings, begin as a single cell. A sperm and an egg, the germ cells, fuse to form this initial cell, an event known as fertilization. Then, after an orchestrated process, which includes repeated cell divisions and progressive specialization, an embryo emerges, then a fetus, and finally, a mature, complex organism. An organism containing several distinct parts and organs, having various shapes and functions, including the ability to make more sperm and eggs. You can't make a direct correlation between music and biological science. It's just not possible. Being an improvising, composing musician and being a scientist, both are investigative endeavors where you're dependent on, on knowledge and learning history and identifying patterns and structures and then trying to come up with something out of all of your knowledge. 
But there are some metaphors that were useful. I thought talking about the cell as an orchestration with uh, lots of different instruments, talking about the DNA as a score that has a code uh, is very useful. A lot of people use that metaphor. A lot of people have used it. The idea that I didn't actually pursue of using improvisation as, a, as li something like mutation. They're both knowledge-based endeavors, and that's, I think that's a misconception about creativity, that it's against knowledge and that knowledge destroys creativity. They're both endeavors where you, you try to go and see for yourself what is actually happening, whether it's under a microscope or whether it's in a room with a piano by yourself. You're trying to get at what, what's at the bottom and ha what makes something work as a work of art or what makes something work as an organism. How can a cell know how to go through the cell cycle and divide? Or how can the many similar cells in an embryo know how to develop into a more complex organism like a tadpole with its more specialized cells? The answers begin with a startling idea. Cells have a lot of information. Basically, cells are smart. If they were computers, we'd say they have three billion bits of information. They know how to divide correctly and to develop into complex organisms because they have inherited those instructions. So what is that information? What is its chemical form? How do cells interpret and use that information? What happens when the information changes? These are questions that have driven biologists for over a century. As most of you already know, the information resides in chromosomes. In particular, in a component of chromosomes known as DNA. DNA is composed of two interwoven strands of a kind of chemical called nucleic acid. This nucleic acid is assembled from four distinct but similar units, colloquially called bases, and named A, C, G, and T. The information in DNA is determined by the order of these four units. This is just the way in which the meaning of the English language is determined by the way we order and arrange 26 letters. For this reason, scientists often think of DNA as a very large text, written with four distinct letters. But for tonight's purposes, we're going to think in similar ways about DNA as a musical score, composed with only four distinct notes. And you know what they are, A, C, G, and T. We know quite a bit about what the score says to get the cell's instruments to play together harmoniously, to produce the music of the cell cycle, of development, and of other things. But we are still learning how to read the entire DNA score. So we're going to focus on a very small part of the score that we understand best. That small fraction, less than 3%, that tells the cell the recipe for its proteins. Proteins are strings of amino acids. The score contains instructions for the order of the amino acids in each protein. In the regions of DNA that encode proteins, three adjacent bases, a triplet, constitutes a word. Each of the 64 possible triplets 
is a word that tells the cell to add one of the 20 kinds of amino acid to the growing end of a protein chain. In response to such instructions, cells can make more than 20,000 different proteins, some at different times, some in different types of cells. Each of the protein coding regions in the DNA score is a gene. There's so much DNA in a human cell that it would be nearly six feet long if laid out end to end. To cram DNA into tiny cells, it is folded up to form chromosomes. This animation provides an artful concept of how that might happen. It's the first in a series of animations that I'll show, thanks to the generosity of the artist, Drew Barry, who's a scientist at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne, Australia. As you can see, the DNA is gradually coiled up with the assistance of the abundant protein shown in colorful forms until one long double strand of DNA forms a protein-coded chromosome. So how is the information in all these DNA notes used to make proteins? The pathway is called the central dogma of molecular biology. DNA makes RNA, makes protein. First, the order of notes in DNA is transposed into what, in musical terms, might be considered a different key. This process yields a slightly different kind of nucleic acid, called RNA, again with four bases. As this film shows, another protein machine, a complex enzyme, locates a place on DNA to begin its work. Once it's found that place, it copies one of the strands of the DNA helix, making a yellow ribbon of RNA. The many small yellow objects that you see floating around the nucleus are the bases that get joined together to form RNA as the enzyme moves along the double helix of DNA. The RNA, like the DNA from which it's copied, is also informative. The order of its bases perfectly matches the order of corresponding bases in the DNA. After a full piece of RNA is made from a single gene, it swims through the nucleus, and then it emerges in the cytoplasm. Each ribbon of RNA in the cytoplasm ends up in the arms of another machine, protein synthesizing machine we mentioned earlier, called a ribosome. The ribosome is now busy reading triplets of notes in RNA. It makes proteins by grabbing amino acids which you'll soon see are the red dots at the ends of small green carrier molecules. Each of the encoded amino acids is added sequentially to a growing chain of amino acids according to the genetic code. And you see the red protein emerging from the ribosome. Once the instructions in the DNA score have been converted into the many proteins that do the work of an organism, we have, in a sense, completed the performance of a cell's music. Making a protein is like playing one line of sound in the rich music of the cell. And now that the many RNA molecules have been translated to make the many proteins needed by that cell, we can say that the DNA score has been fully interpreted, fully performed, to make a cell's music. Here's the part that Darwin did not live long enough to know. Changes in DNA. 
mutations. In the 19th century, no one knew anything about the chemical basis of genetic information, about DNA, about base pairs. Recall that cells commonly contain billions of bits of information and multiple chromosomes. With that much material to copy, to correct, and to sort, inadvertent errors are inevitable. Even if such mistakes are relatively rare, suppose one change in 10 million bases, that would still mean hundreds of errors each time a cell divides. Most cells know how to correct such errors, but some mistakes will still slip through. And these errors will turn up in the daughter cells. They are called mutations. And some may change the sequence of a protein encoded by a gene. These changes that occur in cells during development and in adults are inadvertent and of various kinds. They may be subtle alterations in base pairs detected only by determining the sequence of bases in the DNA score. Some are rearrangements that can be seen more easily, even by looking at chromosomes under a microscope. Most of the mistakes, the one-note changes and the larger rearrangements, that occur during the duplication of the score of any individual cell don't have any significant effects. Some won't change the behavior of cells in any measurable way. Most won't change the small amount of protein coding sequence. Other changes could handicap a few adult cells by making a defective and non-functional protein, and these cells might simply die and disappear. And this, too, won't have any obvious effect on the organs in which they reside because those organs have hundreds of millions of healthy cells. But we must worry about some mutations, even some that occur during adult life, because they can confer new and disturbing powers on a cell, excessive growth and vitality. Cancers are united by mutations, by changes in the DNA score. What kind of mutations lead to cancers? Some answers are already known. The most common of the cancer-causing mutations affect perhaps a few hundred of our more than 20,000 genes. These genes are called oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. They include genes that govern the growth, the development, and the death of cells. The kinds of mutations are varied. Some are changes in the single node of a gene, some are massive rearrangements, deletions, and duplications of a cell's score. Cancer-causing mutations are good for that cell, but they are bad for the organism. And even though they can drive cells to behave in an aggressive manner, they can be surprisingly subtle. Here is part of a small gene called RAS, a single altered base pair like the one shown here is found in about one-third of human lung cancers, about half of human colon cancers, and nearly all of human pancreatic cancers. A change in this note is crucial. It alters only one amino acid in the RAS protein. But that change makes the protein resistant to its normal controls. The protein is altered at a critical site, the 12th amino acid, where much of the action is. So now it persistently tells the cell 
to grow, grow, grow. As a result of this signal from the mutant RAS protein, the cell divides too often. The extra cells overgrow their neighbors, and the cells often spread elsewhere. I certainly concur with the notion that people should know more about science, and I do a lot of talking to general audiences. But let's face it, you know, talking to a few hundred people doesn't change public appreciation of science. They're, first of all, the people who come to those talks are already fairly knowledgeable in general, or somewhat curious, and maybe they forget what they learned. I don't think people learn a tremendous amount that stays with them, but they get some appreciation of science, and they tell their friends they heard scientists talk in approachable language, and I think that's good for science. The other part of it was just, I enjoy it. And uh, for me, it's mind-stretching to try to integrate science with music and the arts, and uh, I think it you know, produces an entertaining evening, which is important to do every now and then. Three strategies are commonly used to treat cancers today. Surgery, chemotherapy, and radiotherapy. When a surgeon can remove all detectable cancer, the chances for a complete cure are the greatest. But doing this doesn't require the surgeon to know about mutations. Likewise, when cancer doctors use radiation or toxic chemicals to damage or kill cancer cells, they don't have to know which specific notes have been changed in the genetic score of the cells. Still, knowing what the mutations are can sometimes help both surgeons and oncologists predict whether a cancer is likely to recur and can guide decisions about the extent of treatment. Current therapies are often toxic to normal cells and disfiguring and disabling to patients. So there is excitement about a new wave of therapies that are focused on the mutations in a cancer cell. The idea is simple, to use precisely targeted drugs to counter the action of a mutant cancer-causing gene. Ideally, this would be a chemical that has no obvious effect on healthy cells and will kill a cancer cell by blocking a rogue protein synthesized from a mutant gene. So for a finale, let's consider the most successful example to date of this important new approach to cancer therapy. Chronic myeloid leukemia is a relatively common leukemia of adults, and it's driven by one of those rearranged chromosomes we've been talking about, this one called the Philadelphia chromosome. This happens as a result of an inadvertent breaks in two chromosomes. When those two broken chromosomes fuse, they form a new hybrid gene. This novel gene makes a dangerous enzyme, one that's abnormally active and can't be shut off by the cell's usual controls. This abnormal enzyme drives blood cells to form leukemias. But a small drug, a chemical called Gleevec, can inhibit that supercharged enzyme by binding to it. When patients are given this drug, especially early in the disease, an amazing thing happens. Nearly all of the leukemic cells die. The blood and the bone marrow resume their normal appearance. And patients do fine for many years, as long as the drug continues to suppress the miscreant enzyme. The thing that I, that I think probably gives me the 
greatest pleasure is discovery. I run a smaller lab than I used to, and I'm not as engaged in day-to-day research as I used to be, though I still run a laboratory. The thing that gives me most pleasure is when somebody actually makes a discovery. Well, I'm interested in illuminating the process so that it becomes clearer in some way, so people are able to relate to it in a way that has immediate impact for them. It's visceral, it raises questions and awareness and makes them wonder about it. That's, I think, the big role of the artist and the composer, musician, is just to make, is to make people wonder. People came up to us after the concert and, and said that they were able to digest more of the science than they ever had. I don't know if it's true, but that was really the goal. Science in the City podcast, we'd really appreciate your support. That can happen if you become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by visiting scienceandthecity.org and clicking the Join NIAS button. Did you know you can subscribe to our Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Just search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, we would really appreciate your feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about science in New York City, you should check us out online, scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.